it turned out that the primary outcome was significantly benefited by over 25%. It just may take a lot more time to see the benefit of good blood pressure control on kidney outcomes and or starting earlier. Welcome to the 12th episode of the Nephron segment, where nephrology is always concentrated, sometimes convoluted, and never dilute. Join a group of nephrons as we try to push the boundaries of kidney medicine. Today, we'll be discussing the SPRINT trial with Dr. William Cushman from the University of Tennessee, Memphis. The SPRINT trial was a landmark clinical trial published in 2015 in the New England Journal of Medicine. It has changed the way we look at hypertension treatment and the measurement of blood pressure. We're going to dive deep and not only talk about the results, but also talk about where the study came from and where we are going with blood pressure control. I'm Matt Sparks, a nephrologist at Duke University. I'm Samira Farouk, transplant nephrologist at Mount Sinai in New York City. And Dr. Cushman, if you could introduce yourself. Yeah, I'm Bill Cushman. I'm professor of preventive medicine, medicine and physiology at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in hypertension research. Yeah, so I was finishing my residency in the mid-1970s and couldn't decide what to do as my subspecialty. So my internal medicine residency, I enjoyed everything. That was the problem. As many of us did, I went on the staff of the VA and the faculty at the university as a young pup to decide what I was going to do when I grew up. And, and I anticipated that I was going to go into private practice in Jackson, Mississippi, which is why I didn't go off somewhere to do my residency training. And uh, so pretty quickly within the first year, there was a vacancy, if you will, and I won't go into details how that happened, but there was a very established hypertension research clinic at the VA doing VA cooperative studies. And it was one of the sites for the original VA cooperative study that proved that treating hypertension was beneficial back in the 1960s. And so the investigator for that study had died, and then another investigator who took over left. And so they convinced me to take over, and I said, okay, I'll do it for six months. And so here I am, many decades later, still doing the same thing. And so this was the VA Cooperative Study Group on Antihypertensive Agents. And my mentor locally had been chair of several National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute hypertension studies, including the Hypertension Detection Follow-Up Program. And so Herbert Langford was his name. And then in the VA Cooperative Study Program, Ed Fries, who chaired the original VA study that proved treating hypertension was beneficial. And then Barry Matterson, who recently died, became my mentors in the VA Cooperative Study Program. And so they somehow saw something in me, my curiosity, my tenacity. And so they kind of put me on a fast track of leadership within the VA Cooperative Study Program. Seems a little bit crazy to hear you say that there was a study that showed that treating blood pressure was beneficial. Seems something that we take uh, for granted. And also seems like you maybe should have considered nephrology training. I think nephrology, cardiology, several others were all considerations. And realized the economy was very different then. One of the problems with cardiology was that it was unclear whether there would be a need for a lot of cardiologists. It depended on how cardiac catheterization and, and bypass surgery went. At that point, nobody was doing angioplasty. And so I was unsure whether I would have a clinical career in cardiology if I went into it. 
Let's dive right into the sprint trial. Tell us about the general makeup of the study and what the results were. Yeah, so sprint was over 9,000 participants above age 50 at high risk for cardiovascular events based on several things, including age above 75 or having chronic kidney disease or having a uh, risk score above 10%. And, and the reason they were higher risk was we wanted to generalize more widely, but we had to have a reasonable risk population in order to have power with a reasonable size uh, study. And so over 9,000 patients were randomized to a, an, an intensive goal of less than 120 millimeters of mercury systolic versus a standard goal of 140 millimeters of mercury systolic. And we can discuss where those came from, but we definitely needed a difference. And those also happened to be the goals that we used in the Accord blood pressure trial, which had just preceded uh, the SPRINT trial, and was actually still going on as we were planning the SPRINT study. I actually chaired the blood pressure intervention committee and had, having had similar experience within the Accord blood pressure trial to chair the hypertension part of that. And so we kind of knew how to do it. And so basically we knew it would take a lot of drugs and starting out with two drugs in the intensive group. So we compared the 120 to 140 and it was going to be a five-year study. And after about three years, the data safety monitoring committee said, wait a minute, we got to stop something here. And so they wanted to inform the investigators and the participants of the differences that they were seeing. And it turned out that the primary outcome was a fatal and non-fatal cardiovascular events. And so that was significantly benefited by over 25%. And also all-cause mortality, which was not the primary outcome, but as you know, in many trials, it trumps everything else if you end up unexpectedly seeing a difference one way or the other in mortality. So it turned out that mortality was reduced by 25 to 30% as well. Both of those highly significant. And that was after a little over three years, and even though it was intended to be a five-year study. So that was the main primary outcome in cardiovascular events. We also had a part of the study that was looking at cognition and dementia and found that there was a 15 to 20% reduction in a combination of mild cognitive impairment and dementia, even though dementia was our primary outcome for that part of the trial. So it weakens the result a little bit, but more recent trials have, are confirming some of that. Before we talk more about the results, I wanted to take a step back to the methods for a second. And so just reviewing here, over 100 clinical sites, five clinical center networks, there are big consortia study like this now that are very, I don't know about easy, but are coordinated via Zoom and these conference calls with video. How did you all do this back then before Zoom and how hard or easy was that? And without having Google Docs, how did you write this paper together? Tell us a little bit about the uh, logistics of being a part of this study. Yeah, I'm not sure I even know yet how well to use Google Docs. <laughs> it was what we were used to back then. So, you know, you look at it differently in retrospect, but, you know, we would have face-to-face -face meetings, probably one every several months for the planning. We had email, so it wasn't ancient history. So we would email Word documents back and forth, and that didn't seem hard at all compared to the old days, where you'd write something out in hand, hand it to somebody to type up, 
then send that draft by mail to your uh, colleagues, whether it was a protocol or a paper or whatever it may be. I will say that in putting together this consortium, you know, one thing that's unfortunate is that there were a lot of other hypertension investigators and sites that just couldn't participate. There wasn't room for them. Even though we were fairly large, there were many that applied that were not able to participate in it. And that's unfortunate, but that was the process that um, National Arlington Blood Institute used at that time. Just a related question about the blood pressure measurement. How all did you share that guidance and what was the guidance to centers about how they should ideally measure blood pressure? Basically, since the 60s or 70s, all hypertension trials had used standard methodology and the major epidemiologic studies, for example, the Framingham Heart Study, had used standard methodology for measuring blood pressure. And it almost always was a certain amount of rest, most commonly five minutes, using proper cuff size, using valid instruments. And and for decades, the only instrument that was used in major studies was a mercury manometer because you knew that it was valid if it was if it zeroed out and it, the column went up and down smoothly. It didn't mean that it was always accurate because a lot of the inaccuracy was the ears of whoever was listening and how they recorded it. But we learned over time that by the ACCORD trial, it was pretty clear that the best way to get unbiased measurement was to use a fully automated machine. And so starting in ACCORD, and we did the same thing in Sprint and other studies have done similar, not always with the same model, but where you push the button, it wakes five minutes, takes the three readings and gives you an average. Now you still have to do everything else correctly. Nobody talking to the patient, the patient sitting and resting for five minutes, proper cuff size, sitting in a chair with back supported. So all of those had to be attended to. So we were very particular about what we specified, basing it on um, what had been done before. Now in the ACCORD trial, because that was the first major NHLBI trial, uh, or VA trial for that matter, where we were using an automated machine, we decided that the staff should be in the room with the participant because when you knew, used a mercury manometer, you were in the room, the staff was. And so there was no way to get around that. And so we did that in Accord in Sprint. There really wasn't a lot of literature out there yet on whether people should be alone in the room In Canada, they actually promoted that. But when we started the study, there just wasn't much there. So we really didn't even specify that. Everything else was very standardized, very similar to what we'd done in prior studies. And then what happened along the way is that that there was a message sent out to leave the patient alone in the room, but somehow that didn't get in the protocol. It didn't get really systematized. And so it turned out, fortunately, that a sizable minority did it with people in the room, with staff in the room, even though the patient was being left alone, everything else was done properly. And then a sizable proportion where the patient was left alone. And we did a paper where we actually analyzed comparing those sites and the results were very similar, even though we weren't measuring blood pressure those two ways in the same mm-hmm. patients. But then, as you may know, there were meta-analyses done later on of multiple trials that were done, particularly after Sprint, looking at whether it mattered, whether somebody was in the room or not. And it turned out it it doesn't really matter. It probably does for a few patients, but for the most part, the averages were very similar. That five minute rest period is 
seems so elusive, almost impossible in, in the real world, but I know that's the that's the goal. So this study is almost 10 years old. And for people that you know may not remember this study, this or the ACCORD trial, could you summarize a little bit about how people were supposed to use different antihypertensives and what the algorithms might be for a typical patient in this study? For the intensive group, it was different than the standard group. And so I won't go into detail on the standard, but basically it's they could be whatever they came in on. And 91% of patients were already on antihypertensive drugs when they came into Sprint. And so whatever they were on, the investigator and the coordinator could kind of estimate what they thought would be appropriate for the blood pressure to to be between 135 and 140 in the standard group. And the interesting thing there was that the standard group patients really, their blood pressures got better when they came in the trial, in part because even if they weren't on more medicines, they were on better regimens. And so their blood pressures did better. In the intensive group, we recommended that everybody be started on at least two drugs. There was one exception to that with people over age 75. If they're on zero to one drug, we allowed the investigator to only begin with one drug, but then to go to two drugs in one month if the blood pressure was not below 120 at that point. But for everybody else, it was starting on at least two drugs. And if they came in on two or three drugs, for example, then the investigator could go ahead and use uh, even three drugs if they wanted to for the intensive group. So just like all the guidelines that preceded, for the most part, Sprint, and since then, the major classes were what we recommended they primarily use initially. So thiazide-type diuretic, uh, calcium channel blocker, and a RAS blocker, either an ACE inhibitor or an angiotensin receptor blocker, but not both. And they could use any combination or initial ones that they wanted to. Within the diuretics, we decided to only go with chlorothaladone as the primary diuretic. And I can go into more detail why we did that, but we were very concerned, and we actually saw this in Accord, that people would underdose hydrochlorothiazide and not get as good a benefit. And so chlorothaladone, which had been used in many major studies prior to that, especially the SHEP study, the HDFP study, um, and the ALAT study, you know, we had a lot of experience with it, knew it was very effective, and on average more effective at lowering blood pressure than hydrochlorothiazide. And so that was recommended as the primary diuretic. And then for the calcium blockers, we recommended amlodipine as the primary calcium blocker, primarily because there was a lot more outcome data with amlodipine than the other uh, calcium blockers, and verapamil or diltiazem shouldn't usually be combined with a beta blocker. And so we knew that some of these patients were going to need beta blockers because they had coronary disease. And so those three classes were used initially, either alone or in combination, and for the intensive group in combination, any two of them. And then the third could be added or other drugs added as needed. The protocol had the patients come back monthly for all the, the participants within the first three months. And then for the intensive participants, they came back monthly until their blood pressure was at goal or the investigator decided this is the best we can do for this patient. And then for the standard patients, then after the first three months, they would generally come back every three months. And, uh, and then the intensive participants, once they were at goal or has decided not to go further, then they then would come back every three months. I want to go back to the guidelines and discuss some of the controversy surrounding them. In 2014, 
the JNC-8 hypertension guidelines were released, often referred to as JNC-late. These guidelines were brewing for quite some time and targeted, in general, a blood pressure around 140 systolic. However, something happened the next year which really kind of rocked the boat, and that was the SPRINT trial was published, pushing the boundary down to 120 systolic. This was really different than what JNC-8 was saying, so it kind of left the community in limbo until 2017 when the ACCAHA guidelines came out. What was happening behind the scenes during that time period? Was there any discussion about delaying JNC-8 until SPRINT was out? And lastly, what is the future of guidelines in hypertension? So many of the JNCs, the latter JNCs, had started recommending systolic blood pressure goals. And they recommended 140 for systolic. Of course, pretty consistently 90 for diastolic. We had great trials, the VA study, HDFP, and others that showed that 90 diastolic as a goal was beneficial. But for systolic, the all the studies with systolic blood pressure essentially had a systolic goal of less than 150. And yet, even before any of those trials were completed, the JNC started recommending 140 and 140 over 90 generally as goal. And in part because the epidemiology suggested 140 was beneficial. And then when SHEP came out, the mean blood pressure in the intensive group was in the low 140s. And so the justification then was, well, let's not change it since we're already recommending 140. Let's keep that up. And that's part of the discussion we had. And I was involved in JNC 7 in 2003 when we kept it at 140 over 90 as the goal. So as time went by and too many years went by before another JNC committee was put together. And uh, so finally, NHLBI did for JNC 8 committee. And what they charged us with, the committee, was to really try to strictly stick with what the evidence showed. So CHEP had essentially had a blood pressure goal of less than 150. Technically, it was a little more complex than that, but the mean goal for the CHEP participants was 148, so pretty close to 150. And then Cystur, HIVET, other systolic blood pressure goal studies all used less than 150. Systolic, CISChina is another one that did that. And so, so the data was very clear for 150. And, you know, we had multiple studies, nothing showing lo lower was better. And so that's the reason that the JNC8 committee recommended the 150. Now, there were a number of the committee members, there were a number of us who, who were also on the SPRINT steering committee and, and involved with SPRINT. And so, you know, we knew and our bias was that SPRINT might show benefit, and we were hoping it would. Uh, otherwise, we wouldn't have spent so much time and money and effort to do the study. But so SPRINT was supposed to be a five-year study. So when the JNCA committee published the recommendations in 2014, it was anticipated that it would be another three or four years before the SPRINT trial results would come out. And so, as I alluded to earlier, SPRINT was stopped early after three years because of a, an unexpected uh, dramatic benefit uh, at that point in time. And so instead of a 15 to 20% benefit, which would have taken probably five years to show the 25 to 30% benefit um, meant that it needed to be stopped early. And uh, so that's why Sprint was stopped and announced and published very quickly. So if Sprint had, and that's why it was published in 2015, if we had waited the five years, gotten the results, 
done the usual deliberation of everything, we wouldn't have made this necessarily a dramatic announcement real quickly. So it really was three to four years earlier than we had anticipated. Uh, again, anticipating that when the results came out, a new guideline would would reflect that. And, uh, and, and then, of course, the what happened is that National Oil and Blood Institute decided not to do guidelines anymore, even before JNC-8 was published. And uh, that's why the committee published it. And it wasn't under the official auspices at that point of NHLBI, even though the committee had been charged and put together by NHLBI. And so, so then NHLBI decided that they would defer to societies to basically do the guidelines. And so the ACCHA guidelines for the first time really addressed uh, a general guideline on treatment of hypertension with the 2017 uh, guidelines. And I, my hope is that, that fairly frequently, even though it's been six years, I think most people would hope that the guideline evolution would be more quickly than that. And uh, so my, I have no official word on this. My understanding is that, that the guideline committee has either been selected or in the process of being selected. That's rumor completely, but, but I think that'd be a good thing. And so I think it, it is time for a new guideline to be put together and to come out. If for no other reason, we may not have new data in some areas, but for blood pressure, what we have is at least three additional studies showing that lower goals, systolic, are beneficial. One showing 120, a couple showing 130, and um, and so and I think there will be a couple more that will come out, in, you know, in the relatively near future that may further bolster that. Also, very important, there was a lot of emphasis put on blood pressure measurement in uh, the ACCHA guideline. As in most guidelines, there's some emphasis, but I think there will be even more put on it. Uh, there's certainly the kidney guidelines, the International Cadigo Kidney Guidelines, uh, basically had two recommendations. One is you have to measure blood pressure properly to know how to treat people for hypertension. Once you do that, then here's what the goal should be. And they recommend, we recommended, I was actually part of that committee, we recommended less than 120. Uh, so whether it'll be 120 or 130, I think there will be more emphasis on it and hopefully will overcome some of the naysayers out there. And as you may know, the fairly recently, the American Academy of Family Practice came out with guidelines, once again, recommending 140 over 90, as opposed to something lower in systolic. So hopefully it'll be more difficult for any group to ignore the consistent data on the 120 or 130 goal. So many guidelines, so many studies. We will link to all of these in the show notes. And I love that the KDGO 2021, they have the one-page summary of the, the takeaways. And I really love that almost a third of the page is the cartoon showing how to take blood pressure and all the things that are not yeah. routinely always happening, including like an empty bladder and all the other things. So we wanted to pivot a little bit away from guidelines for a second and go back to the SPRINT study. And as nephrologists, we were concerned by the AKI signal in the intensive group, and that didn't really make sense for us in conjunction with lower cardiovascular events. We would expect kidney protection of anything. So what should we take away from that? What can we learn from that? One thing that people need to expect is when you treat blood pressure intensively, correctly with the right drugs and what have you. And I think it is important to reflect on what drugs 
uh, and classes were used in Sprint and the fact that we really discouraged use of things like clonidine. We didn't want alpha blockers, for example, to be used as initial therapy. They certainly could be used in the regimen. But I think it's important to avoid drugs that are more prone to cause orthostatic hypotension or, or just hypotension in general. We had a little bit more hypotension events, if you will, uh, within the intensive group, but it, it wasn't a blinded study in that regard, so it could have been overestimated. And clearly that didn't offset the cardiovascular benefits. It didn't cause more falls, for example. There were not more falls and fractures. And so when you do it properly, I think you're going to get some bumps in creatinine is the way I would put it. You're going to get what's called acute kidney injury. To my knowledge, none of those acute kidney injury events within Sprint were severe or led to dialysis, for example, even acute dialysis. And so they were very manageable. And, um, and we actually often restarted medications that we had to perhaps stop temporarily. And I think that's part of what we just need to expect to have to do in managing hypertension. And um, now the, the kidney outcome in terms of declining renal function or end-stage kidney disease were not different. There was maybe a little bit more decline in renal and kidney function within the uh, intensive group, but it really wasn't a lot. And it, as, again, it did not lead to more end-stage kidney disease, dialysis, transplant, what have you. My personal bias is that, and I'm not a nephrologist, so I have to state that uh, very clearly, is that it just may take a lot more time to see the benefit of good blood pressure control on kidney outcomes and or starting earlier. And so, for example, when you look at cardiovascular outcomes for hypertension studies, heart failure, we usually see benefits or differences very early. In the all-hat study, we saw a twofold difference in heart failure benefit for the diuretic compared to either the ACE inhibitor or the um, calcium channel blocker within six months. So heart failure, you can see very quickly. Uh, stroke is somewhat longer. Usually within a couple of years, you see the effects of hypertension treatment on stroke. It happened to be longer in the ACCORD trial. Was, the curves didn't separate until after three years. And that may be why we didn't see a significant benefit for stroke within the SPRINT study, which we would have expected to see and has been seen in the Chinese studies, for example. And coronary disease, as far as acute MIs and atherosclerotic events, may take many years in terms of blood pressure having an effect on them. And so that's why we often don't see an effect on coronary disease within hypertension studies. And I think it's possible that the same thing is true for kidney disease and kidney function is that, you know, if Assuming there is a benefit from blood pressure control and lower blood pressure, which we assume there is, since having uncontrolled and higher blood pressure often leads to decline in renal function, then it just may need to be started earlier or have to be, the blood pressure has to be controlled for a much longer period of time before seeing it. I think as nephrologists, we kind of missed the boat a little bit. The you know mean creatinine in the SPRINT trial was one. And by the time we see people, I think very few of our patients have a serum creatinine of, of one. To be fair, 
CKD was a focused population within Sprint, and we did recruit a lot of nephrology sites and had a fairly, and I can't remember the percent right now, but we, we not as much as we wanted, but we had a fairly good percent of patients with at least stage three chronic kidney disease. They couldn't get in if they were below that. But so, and National Institute of Diabetes Kidney Disease was involved um, and certainly had a very strong interest in that. So, so there was a lot of interest in that. That actually is one of the reasons that we didn't include diabetes within Sprint is because the the nephrologists felt that diabetic nephropathy is different from hypertension nephropathy. And we'd already done the study in Accord, even though there weren't as many CKD patients. But for that reason, we did we did focus on non-diabetic kidney disease within Sprint, and we're continuing to see if there are any very long-term outcome differences for those that were randomized to the intensive group versus the standard group, just as we are for the cognition and dementia outcome. This might be a topic for another podcast, but we're trying to move away from saying hypertensive nephropathy and recognizing that it's you know, something else underlying. I mean, I, I just noticed, interestingly, there's, you know, both groups had a little bit of albuminuria in the 40s, which is, you know, abnormal over 30. And so something that I had not noticed before. And generally, intensive treatment does lower albuminuria. So that's one reason why we would assume that if we follow these patients long enough, then we might see some benefits. What were some things that you were surprised about with Sprint? I mentioned the stroke, that we didn't see a benefit on stroke. I think probably the biggest surprise, though, was that with with only three years of follow-up, we saw a significant reduction in the incidence of mild cognitive impairment and dementia. So it was about a 15 to 20% reduction. And, you know, what, epidemiologically, what we see is that middle-age blood pressures or hypertension predict old-age dementia. And so that's a matter of decades. So the fact that we were seeing a benefit within just three years, I think was really a surprise. And and that's also a reason that we're continuing. There weren't very many dementia events, which is why that by itself was not significant, probably, even though it had the same percent reduction as the mild cognitive impairment incidents. So I think that probably is the biggest surprise. And we're, we're continuing to follow the participants long-term to see if what we did during the intensive intervention makes a difference, you know, many years later when dementia would be more expected to rear its ugly head. I'm sure there are other surprises, but maybe one is that if you look at the adverse events, people make a lot of the few adverse events that we reported that were more common. Uh, The acute kidney injury that you mentioned, the uh, hypotension, electrolyte disturbances, but those were really less than a percent to a percent difference uh, between the two groups. If you look at the overall adverse events, serious adverse events were actually identical in the intensive and the standard group. And to me, that was a surprise that I would have expected that we would have had more serious adverse events in the intensive group, but that would be worth doing, worth creating, if you will, if we were seeing Uh, a good benefit in terms of cardiovascular outcomes and mortality. And that's the thing that we have to remind people is even even though there are going to be some adverse events, the 25 to 30% reduction in mortality, the 25 to 30% reduction in overall cardiovascular event rates, and we believe the 
15 to 20% reduction in dementia and mild cognitive impairment are worth having to manage some of those occasional adverse events. If you could go back and do this study again, what would you do differently, if anything? Or have you learned something from this that you've applied in future studies that you were a part of after this? I guess one regret is that not including some of the populations that were excluded. And there were reasons for excluding them. So the diabetes, for example, we just had a much larger cohort of people with diabetes that were in the uh, ACCORD trial. And it had not been completed when we started uh, SPRINT, but we would have never had a large enough cohort uh, within SPRINT to get a a definitive answer that was different. It could have added to a meta-analysis. And it turns out that there were a lot of people in SPRINT that had elevated glucoses and were pre-diabetic, if you will. And that population had as much or more benefit as those without. So we really do think, and, and there are other reasons why even looking back at Accord, we think that overall there is benefit uh, for the intensive goal for diabetes. And the other was stroke. Um, there was another stroke study being sponsored by NIH, the uh, SPS3 study. So SPS3 was going on and had a systolic blood pressure goal of less than 130. And if we had started SPRINT with a lot of patients with prior stroke, then if SPS3 had shown a benefit for the 130 goal, then we would have had to taken all those participants out of the uh, SPRINT study or even the standard patients we would have needed to treat to a goal of less than 130. Uh, So one of those would have had to happen and that would have uh, weakened our power. So I, I think that for the most part, most people we included were appropriate. We had, a, a, I think, a very good representation of uh, men and women, of minorities. Always can do better, obviously, in those. But, uh, um, but I think at this point, I have no major regrets since the results were so definitive. And now they're being replicated in other studies. And just one uh, side question to that. Who comes up with the names for these studies? You mentioned several of these abbreviations today. And so SPRINT... Uh, stands for systolic blood pressure intervention trial, which is, I think, very clever. How does that happen? And have you ever been part of the naming of one of these big studies? Yeah. So I think every study, the steering committee is involved in in deciding about the name and, and uh, you know, and you bat around several things. Most of the work is surrounding the name. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's major. <laughs> and the irony is that there were older studies, particularly VA studies, where they discouraged having any kind of a, an acronym name. So those of us that were involved in older VA cooperative studies, for example, when somebody says, you know, cooperative study 213, then all of us who were involved know what it was, but nobody else in the world does. <laughs> so it's nice to have an acronym, in my opinion. And so basically, the ultimately, you know, usually the steering committee decides, I, I honestly can't remember who came up with the... Uh, nomination for Sprint. I know more often than not, Jeff Cutler, who was with NHLBI for many, many years uh, and involved in hypertension studies there, has come up with some of the better ideas for the acronyms. And he usually blames them for putting together the protocol. As we wrap up here, um, we know that hypertension research is one thing that brings you joy. Can you tell us something else outside of that that brings you joy? (laughs) Oh, gee, yes. Well, first and foremost, probably my family. My wife, I have three kids and they're all married and I have so far four granddaughters. So we try to spend as much time with them as we can. Um, I'm also an Orthodox priest. 
and I enjoy serving in the church. And uh, obviously, can't be the primary priest. I help out when I can. And, uh, and I love traveling. There are other things, too. People keep asking me if I knew what I'd do if I were fully retired. And I don't know if I'll ever fully retire, but when I somewhat retire, I can think of lots of things I would enjoy doing. Thank you, Dr. William Cushman, for joining us today on the Nephron segment. We had a great time talking about all things hypertension and the sprint trial. And a big thank you to our listeners. We hope that you enjoyed this episode of the Nephron segment where nephrology is always concentrated, sometimes convoluted, and never dilute.